Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, children of the night. Tales to Terrify has a lengthy tradition of making mistakes, mispronouncing authors or narrators' names, bumbling through the strange names of horror publishers, or even an occasion getting the title of the evening story wrong. This time, I've managed to attribute a submitted story to a completely different author. This is a new one for us, and thankfully the author, Carrie Freeman, has been a great sport about an unusually big mix-up. The Tales to Terrify staff has a workflow for getting stories from submission to airing, and either that broke down somewhere or I skipped a step. So I went looking for Carrie Freeman's biographical information online and found a different Carrie Freeman who also writes Southern-themed fiction and also appears to have a short story called Southern Comfort. So I grabbed the wrong one and read it, and now I'm embarrassed by that. Sorry, Carrie. The previous episode has a cut in it where I fixed up the audio, so if you're listening to that episode and hear a bit of a rough edit right before her story, that's why. Usually I let these little mix-ups and mispronunciations go so that people for years to come can look back and have a laugh. But this was too big of a deal to let go on. So once again, Carrie, sorry about that. Our first story of the evening comes from David Neal Wilson, who has been writing and publishing horror, dark fantasy, and science fiction since the mid-80s. An ordained minister, once president of the Horror Writers Association and multiple recipient of the Bram Stoker Award, his novels include Maelstrom, The Moat in Andrea's Eye, Deep Blue, The Grail's Covenant Trilogy, Star Trek Voyager Chrysalis, Except You Go Through Shadow, this is my blood, ancient eyes, on the third day, the Orphurious Wheel, and Vintage Soul, book one of the Dechance Chronicles. The Stargate Atlantis novel Brimstone, written with Patricia Lee McComer, is his most recent. 
He has over 150 short stories published in anthologies, magazines, and five collections, the most recent of which were Defining Moments, published in 2007 by WFC award-winning Sarab Press, and the currently available And We and Other States of Madness from Dark Regions Press. His work has appeared in and is due out in various anthologies and magazines. David lives in loves with Patricia Lee Maycomer in the historic William R. White House in Hertford, North Carolina, with their children, Billy, Zach, Zane, and Katie, and occasionally their genius college daughter, Stephanie. David is CEO and founder of Crossroad Press, a cutting-edge digital publishing company specializing in electronic novels, collections, and nonfiction, as well as unabridged audiobooks. Find more about Crossroad Press, either at the Crossroad Press blog, the Crossroad Press online store, or the Digital Drive-In, a blog filled with reviews, interviews, podcasts, video clips, and more. And now, David Neal Wilson's Patterns and White Static. Townhouse walls are very thin. Always keep that in mind when you purchase a home. Go straight to the central wall, the shared wall they call it. Wrap on the wood, or the paneling, or the drywall, whatever your particular wall is covered in. Test its solidity. Listen for an echo. Wait to see if someone knocks back. The other half of my townhouse was vacant when I moved in. It didn't occur to me to test the shared wall. Everything was new, bright, shiny, and quiet. The neighborhood itself was new, bright, shiny, and quiet. I lived alone, no children, no pets. I liked that very much. Even though there was only a small six-foot border on the side of my house, and an identical border in the yard beyond before the next house begins, and even though the people who live there have two small children and a dog, I was able to close my blinds and my curtains and turn up the stereo. Once the rooms were dark and the soft, endless music flowed from room to room across the banks of surround-sound speakers I had installed, it was as if I was the only man in a very silent, very empty universe, seated at its center in blissful peace. I have learned more than the testing of shared walls. I have learned that even the only man in a very silent, very empty universe will eventually be found, because a void must be filled. The other half of my townhouse was a void, and eventually it too was filled. He came in quietly, slipping past my inner defenses unnoticed. I knew the townhouse had sold, of course. While I didn't have a say in it, the realty company knew of my special need for privacy. They came to me prior to the sale with the man's credentials. They assured me of his discretion and his silence. College professor, no children. I watched in silence as he took possession. His furniture was not remarkable. A sofa, some tables, box after box of books, exactly what you would expect. I didn't see a stereo, the one could easily have been secreted among the boxes and ferried past me unaware. 
My own pre-white noise world was permeated by the sounds of collected music. Long hours spent emailing, watching, searching and downloading, mixing and compiling. I can't abide the commercial. But I can divide it electronically into its many parts, and once divided, conquer it with my own vision. The last thing to be carried into the townhouse, under his direct supervision, was a series of wooden crates wrapped in a layer of cardboard. There were no markings on the boxes themselves, meaning that he had packed them, or had them packed, but not sent via a shipping company. He didn't open any of them in the yard for me to examine. The boxes disappeared into the world beyond our shared wall and retained their mystery. Then he came home one day, parked, and leaned in to draw something from the back seat of the car. I suppose I could have gotten a better look, but for some reason I did not. He stood, turned, and headed up the walk holding something by a round handle. It was draped in what first appeared to be a towel. As he came up the walk, I realized it was a dark curtain of some sort, falling down over the sides of the object he carried, which resembled an antique oil lantern. Before all this had properly registered my mind, he was inside, and I was left to wonder. The thought that it might have been a birdcage flitted through my mind, and then was quickly dismissed. The realtor's been clear that the man had no pets. That night, as I lay awake, thinking back over my day and waiting for the continuously looping digital music to reach my customary sleep trigger, I heard it for the first time. The sound was a soft, rhythmic scraping, like the very edge of a thin piece of paper brushed across a rough surface, or the branch of a tree teased over a window pane. I could think of nothing that would cause such a sound that could also be heard over my music. My sleep trigger came and went, but I lay clutching the sheets, listening to the relentless scraping and flinching as if it were scratching into my skin. Once the music had progressed, I knew I would not sleep, so I rose, but even as I went about the unfamiliar late-night tasks, like making coffee and flipping through the cable channels with the sound turned down, the sound continued. It wasn't that it was loud, but it was incessant. In fact, it seemed so subtle that I could not understand why it didn't dissolve into the music in the background, or roll under the wave of sound from the sink as I filled the coffee pot. When the sun rose, the sound ceased. I can't state this in any scientific terms, but I would swear that, as I stared through the slitted blinds in my front room, listening to the music I was accustomed to hearing only in the early morning REM period of sleep and sipping my tenth cup of strong coffee, I felt the sunrise in that cessation of sound. As the bright orange light of the new day kissed the skyline, it was like a switch, snapping my silence back into place, as if it had never been broken. That was the first time. I watched as he left, a briefcase swinging casually at his side, pants pressed and plenty of energy in his stride. 
my skin tingled with sparks of caffeine itch and irritation. The back of my mind tingled in a thrall of deprivation. As he slipped behind the wheel of his late-model Volvo and backed into the street, my mind replayed parts of my background soundtrack out of sequence, and I knew that the trigger point would no longer bring me sleep. I turned to the stereo, my computer, and creativity, hoping to weave a new mix that could return my rest. That night, he brought two more of the strange lantern-shaped objects to his door and disappeared inside. I thought of actually walking over to knock and introduce myself, but I never do more than think of such things. His door closed quietly. I stood for a long time near the shared wall, but heard nothing. The music was both familiar and unfamiliar. Old cuts remixed, blended with some new pieces and nearly forgotten older clips I'd salvaged from a dark corner of the net. I was queasy with the strangeness of it. The endless cups of coffee were alternately bitter and aromatic, and I found myself more than once standing before a blank wall, eyes closed and breathing deeply, trying to order my thoughts. These moments did not last because when my eyes were closed, I saw the shared wall. Firefly glows of light moved across its surface and scraped and scratched. From each of those glowing orbs, eyes watched me, sliding along the wall to keep me in sight, their filthy gaze lingering over my skin and ripping through the short hair at the nape of my neck until the shivers turned into shakes and I opened my eyes to prevent my coffee from spilling or my legs from collapsing. I knew I had changed the music too much, but there had been no choice. The last time I had made a major change had been immediately after moving into the townhouse. That had been the creation of the voice of the place, and it had taken weeks for me to recover. The rhythm and pace of the music was that of my life as well, and when it shifted, my body reacted. I lay down at eight o'clock to wait. The point of sleep was not something I programmed in, but that came of its own accord. When my eyelids closed and my synapses slowed to lower levels, my brain bookmarked the sound. I would come to anticipate it and move into the new schedule without question. At nine, I was still awake, staring, my heart beating unnaturally quickly. I could feel the strain of keeping my eyes open endlessly, of not resting my muscles or my mind of everything shattering slowly, dissolving like a castle of sand on the beach eroding under the gentle caress of a wave. I slept. I dreamed. A large turntable spun in the center of a dark room. The record whirled so quickly that I knew it must be an old 78 RPM cut. I drifted closer. It did not seem like walking until I was close enough to see the label. I couldn't read the words. It was yellow, like an old sun recording, but I could not be sure, and there was no sound. The needle spun to the center and caught in the inner groove. There were no knobs on the player, which was of an indistinct make and model. 
The volume rose softly. I floated around the player, ran my fingers over the oily surface of the thing, but there was no way to turn it off. There was no cord. A soft glow rose along one wall of what I now saw was a small room. I turned to the light, though the sound of the needle trapped in its eternal circle drove like hissing nails between my thoughts and split them before they could make sense. In the soft illumination, shadows rose and fell, keeping time. Two large, two large eyes stared motionless at me from the center of the vision. The volume rose again, and then again. I spun. Grasping the arm of the turntable, which seemed thin and sharp, I yanked my hand back and dragged it from the black vinyl. I felt it snap as I bent it backwards, heard the deafening silence, and... I woke suddenly. The fingers of one hand gripped the sheets of my bed so tightly that I was afraid I'd broken the slender, delicate bones. I arched, gasped breath deeply into my lungs. I listened. There was nothing. Only the soft, somehow alien strains of my digital backdrop world greeted me. I glanced at the clock. It was three in the morning. Two and a half more hours remained until I should rise, and yet now that was changed as well. I would sleep at some point just after nine, and I would awaken at three. And there was nothing I could do to change it, unless I was willing to go through it all again, shifting the music and hoping for a better result. My mind had already recorded the sound into the slots of my new schedule. Three and a half more hours in every day. Twenty-four and a half hours less sleep every week. One hundred and eight and one half hours a month except on the short ones, 1,277 and a half hours a year, and I rolled out of bed and sat up groggily, trying to orient myself. The untapped hour and the slightly unfamiliar music lent an air of serility to the moment that shadowed my steps and distracted my thoughts. I could not rid myself of the image of those two huge eyes staring, or the sensation that they had hovered, or moved in some manner that I should not. The 78 RPM record spun endlessly in the back of my mind, but there was, thankfully, no sound. After grasping my fingers and releasing them a few times, I was relieved to find that, though they might be lightly bruised, I had not broken or torn anything of significance as I ripped the phantom tone arm from its wires. I made coffee and stared at the screen of my computer console for nearly an hour, and then gave up and moved to the window by the front door. I sipped coffee and watched as he departed. He carried the same briefcase, wore a different pair of immaculately pressed trousers, and as he passed my door, he hesitated. He turned stared straight through the tinted glass and half-open blind into my eyes, and stood very still, as if something had just occurred to him, or he had seen something peculiar. My hand trembled on a wrist suddenly limp as a dish rag, 
and only a quick stab with the other hand steadied my coffee and prevented a nasty spill. He turned away and hurried down the steps, leaving me to gather my nerves and thoughts as best I could. The extra hours in the day were interminable. By the time the afternoon faded to dusk, I was a nervous wreck. My eyes burned from a lack of sleep. My head pulsed with a nagging, tearing pain of unrelieved tension. The music had faded to a white noise hum in the back of my brain, forgotten and out of sync. I stood, just as I had in the morning, staring out at the street, watching for his headlights, watching to see what he would bring. Instead, a brown UPS truck arrived. The driver stopped in front of the two townhouses, stepped down to the sidewalk, and walked around behind the truck to open the sliding doors. What he dragged carefully out was a long box, square at the ends and at least six feet in length. Then another. Once they were on the ground safely, he drew out several large parcels. Satisfied, he began carrying the packages up the sidewalk starting with one of the long boxes marked Fragile in large letters. He knocked on the door next door and waited patiently. He knocked a second time and then stepped directly to my door so quickly I shied away from the window. There was no need. He couldn't see me through the tinted glass, and I had no intention of answering his knock, but it startled me, as sudden intrusions into my life always do. Heart hammering, I stepped back to the window and watched as, giving up on me as well, he filled out some papers, tucked them into the mailbox next door, and left the packages piled beside the walk. I craned my neck, examining each of the boxes, but I couldn't get a good angle to view the labels. I thought about stepping out to inspect them, but all I ever do is think about such things. It was out of the question. Then, as my mind finally settled, a thought occurred to me, and I crossed the room to the computer. With a few deft flicks of the mouse, I had opened my security system. I flipped through the various camera angles that showed the exterior of my home, never more than a six-inch gap in view from one lens to the next. When the porch filled the screen, I seated myself and manipulated the controls. Above my front door was a concealed camera with a remote control that allowed me to change the pitch, angle, and zoom. It was normally set to catch anyone arriving at the front door, but now I spun it to the right and down. The largest of the packages came into view, and I hit the zoom, bringing it closer, enlarging the image and tapping the angles right to left to keep the label in the center of my screen. I zoomed in carefully until the label was just large enough to read and then quickly saved the image. Just in time. As the LED blinked off and the save was complete, a leg appeared on the screen, much larger than life and with no warning. I froze, my hand on the control that would have returned the camera to its normal position. I didn't want him to hear the mechanism as I moved it. My neighbor walked up the steps to his door his attention on the parcels and hands laden with two more of the odd lanterns, very large ones. 
He placed them on the front step, turned, and returned to his car. He did this three times until the sidewalk was littered with the things, mocking me. I hesitated only a second. Working quickly, I spun the lens to left a little and focused on one point of the mystery containers. I zoomed in, heart hammering crazily in counterpoint to the soft rhythm of the music flowing around me. I focused the camera and saved the image. I shifted the lens to bring one of the draped cases into focus and snapped a second image. Then, without pausing to see what I'd captured, I spun the camera back to its normal coordinates and stepped away from the screen, back to my vantage point by the window. He had already moved most of the boxes inside and all of the odd lantern-shaped cases. I thought I'd missed all there was to see, but instead of entering his townhouse and closing the door, he returned to his car a final time. This time, he opened the passenger side door and very carefully extracted the largest of the odd contraptions yet. Nearly two feet to a side, a square case with a slightly pedoga-like lid, a ring implanted on the top, which he gripped gingerly. Again, I thought of birds, but I would have known. There would be debris falling from the cages, and what sort of birds could have been in the smaller cases, some of them no more than four inches square? He carried it up the stairs and through his doors, and I was left staring into growing shadows of evening, my heart racing and my thoughts rattling like dried peas in my skull. I breathed carefully and reached out to the sound. Music settled over me, into me, and at last embraced me. I turned away from the window and went to work. Menard's Laboratory Supply, San Valiance, California. Fluorescent black light bulbs. Addressee, Dr. Martin Opizio, 1315 Othello Terrace. I stared at the screen, wishing the act could elicit more words, that I had gotten photos of more of the labels, that I had gotten no photo at all. Black lights. How many modern men with the title doctor kept black lights in their house, and why? Timothy Leary being dead, it seemed unlikely that he was setting up experiments with hallucinogens. And the lanterns, or cases, what were they? Something itched at my senses. I clicked the small magnifying glass icon that controlled the zoom. I scrolled to the right corner. Something. Zoom 100%. There, a round smudge, with a cloth folded almost imperceptibly. Zoom 500%. Clarify. I waited. The software was powerful, and rather than a PC, I was on a terminal attached to a small commercial network server housed in what would have been my garage. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Garage had I needed a car. The image processed, resampled, and grew clearer. The program analyzed the colors and the pixel ratio and rendered a larger, cleaner graphic by estimating hue and outline through a complex system of algorithms. There were three concentric rings visible, fuzzy at the edges. The center was dark brown, like a doe's eye. The second was pale and white, feathered into the first, and the outer semicircular ring was deep, iridescent green. I shivered and closed my eyes. The nightmare gripped me so suddenly and completely that I clutched my desktop, gripping tighter and tighter until it shook and still unable to release. Great floating eyes watched me in silent contempt, wavering as if I watched them through turbulent water, then dissolved into darkness. I woke to an incessant, grinding beep. It took several moments to get my bearings, and when I finally did, I saw I had passed out across my keyboard. I'd fallen into the keys. My screen was locked. The clever spinning DNA molecule busy cursor rolled in endless spirals. When the memory finally flushed sufficiently to allow it, the beeping died away and my desktop flickered back to life. The clock in the lower right-hand corner of the screen said 8 p.m. The music played softly in the background, and the echo of the keyboard's protesting cry shimmered around its edges, not quite ready to release my mind. I blinked and stared at the digital time readout again. I had not slept outside of my confined, prescribed hours in ten years. Already I felt a reflexive tug at my senses. I closed the security program and quickly went through my log-off procedure. I felt as if I were working under a lens. The lights were too bright. And though each movement was familiar, I felt self-conscious. I rose quickly and made my way to my bedroom. My lights were on a timed sequence and they dimmed ahead of me rather than behind. For a panic moment, I stood bathed in music and darkness several feet from the door with no light at all. My doors are sealed, top, bottom, and sides. Light from one room does not invade the space of another. In that instant, I was terrified and alone and nearly keeled over once more from the emotional weight of the shadows surrounding me. Then I stepped forward, opened the door, and entered. I hurried, 
making up for lost time. I laid each thing in its place and slid just as the lights dimmed and the music reached its critical point between my sheets. The music soaked through me and washed me from the waking world. I was asleep before my cheek rested on the pillow. And again, I dreamed. I stood in a dark hallway. There was a doorway ahead on the right. I heard a hum from within, loud and insistent like some barely controlled swarm, and light leaked at the edges of the doorframe. The light was neon blue-white, the faint lavender tinge of the black light bulb, and I thought vaguely of the long box, Menard's laboratory supplies. Soft, rhythmic scraping rose from within the hum. Just for a moment, the blackness surrounded me and whirled, and I saw a yellow, sun-like object in its center. The image of the old phonograph surfaced for the third time and sunk beneath the waves of darkness and sound, blurred in the hum and wiped away by the shh-shh. I stepped forward and grabbed the doorknob. It spun easily. I heard a sharp, distinct click as the lock released, then hesitated. The maddening, grating sound intensified. Just for a moment it fluttered. There is no better way to describe it, like a heartbeat at the very moment of a loud, unexpected noise, or the unexpected growl of a wild animal. It steadied quickly, but grew louder. I wanted to push open the door. Whatever was making the sound was just beyond it, and I had the undeniable conviction that if I could meet it head-on, I could stop the sound and drive back the hum. I could find the music, fall into the pattern, and dissolve into my life. I pushed the door open slowly. The light brightened perceptibly. The sound ground into my mind in short, measured beats. Shh. I clenched my teeth and stepped through that doorway. The eyes confronted me, huge and glaring, brilliantly colored with deep black pupils, all shimmering with a purplish light. My feet met nothing solid within the room. As the eyes floated, wavered, flickered and stared, I fell. There was no floor. More of the black light radiance rose from the void where it should have been, and I tumbled headlong into those glowing depths, expecting to be burned, expecting to come up against the source of the light and fry like a mosquito in a hanging bug zapper. I cried out and shifted my hands in front of me to break my fall. I hit the floor hard, tangled in a sweat-soaked knot of limbs and sheets. Gasping for air, I flailed and managed to tighten that knot by several degrees before I caught the frayed edges of sanity and closed my eyes. My breathing slowed by degrees, and eventually I was able to unwind the sheets and roll to the side and then onto my knees. As my thoughts cleared, I became aware that the scraping sound had not stopped with the end of the dream. It was louder than it had been the first night. I heard my music only in snatches between scrapes, and those were longer in duration and excruciatingly slow. My mental image of the turntable slowed its rotation to 33 and a third, or even the rare 16 RPM of school soundtrack recordings. Somehow, the shift in sound shifted my half-fogged dream memory as well, 
expanding those great staring eyes until they filled the walls of my bedroom, bleeding beyond the edges. Weak and shaking, I rose, staggered to the door and into the hall, hesitating only slightly as I placed my foot beyond the doorframe. I reached the computer terminal and seated myself carefully. Each shht, shht weakened my concentration, and I did not want to fall again. I reached up to a rack over the console where a variety of cables and adapters hung. Beside them, on a hook, were my headphones. These were not the little foam-coated contraptions that come with Walkmans and portable MP3 players. These were the real thing. Heavy leather ear pads, miniature cones of silence that would drive the horrible grating madness from my mind with their high volume, low distortion, and separate tone and volume controls, and the long coiled cord that bound them to the computer. I jacked in, leaned my head on the leather back of the chair, and waited. Very faintly, deep in the recess of the mix, I heard it. If I had not been listening for it, it would have taken longer. But I know my music. I created it. The small digital clock read 2.30 a.m. I logged onto the computer and set to work. The first delivery arrived at 8 o'clock, dropped into the metal chute I'd installed for the purpose, and they continued in a steady stream until late afternoon. Some time after that first package was in my hands, the sound stopped, and I was able to take off the headphones. Even so, I clipped them to my belt and coiled the cord carefully into my pocket. I placed the white noise devices as inconspicuously as I could, turned each on as I plugged it in, and set the volume knobs to mid-range. The effect was subtle at first but by the time they were all installed, the combined impact was staggering. I was buffeted from wall to wall, pressed in towards the center, and wound in a cocoon of sound. I did not hear the scraping, but there was no way to tell how effective my precautions would be. I waited. Every time I scuffed my foot too hard on the floor, I froze, expecting the sound. Every time the music shifted from one interlude to the next... I waited to hear that hideous shh, shh in the background, but there was nothing. I scanned the net obsessively and placed more orders, though I knew it was pointless. You can only wear so many earphones. You can only pad your walls so many times. The image of the cocoon would not leave me. The white noise backdrop accompanied by the new music my mind tried frantically to process and organize, wrapped about me so tightly it added to the illusion. I pictured the walls growing thicker and stretching closer to the center. I imagined them covered in thick, soundproof tiles, layer on layer. I thought of long strips of cloth wrapped round and round, mummy-like, deadening and deafening, walling out the sound. I started to drift towards sleep, exhausted from the night's terrors, and on that edge of sleep the mummy wrappings gave way to darker images. The strips of cloth were not wrapped snugly and comfortably, but bound my arms tightly to my sides. They held my legs immobile, and I could barely crane my neck as they wound higher and tighter, cutting off the flow of air to my lungs. 
My ears remained bare. The sound returned, and I could not stop it. I could not escape or break the tight bindings. I sat up quickly. The sound had returned. The music played ineffectual backdrop, and the white noise generators hissed like a brood of vipers. Through it all, I heard the steady shh, shh. It was louder than before. It shivered through the hair on the back of my neck and rippled over my skin. I turned and stared at the shared wall. It shivered. I saw the sound ripple through the plasterboard, riding across it in waves that started on one wall and rolled across to the next. As the ripple passed the center of the wall, the volume increased. A passing car on wet pavement, nails on a chalkboard, not screeching, but with that painful potential riding shotgun, waiting for its moment to attack. I staggered around the rooms, flipping the volume knobs on the white noise generators to their limits. I felt the sound like fine grains of sand pressed around me. The shh grew fainter. I went to my desk and retrieved the earplugs from the Insomniac website and carefully inserted them in my ears. This cut the white noise by at least half and dampened the shh shh further, though it still breathed through the mix and licked me from the inside out. It was evening and I knew that the music would reach the trigger point soon. I dreaded sleep and the dream. Huge, multi-hued eyes glared at me each time I closed my eyes. The sound shook the floor with each passing. No longer limited to the sharing wall, it rolled around and through my rooms, beneath my thick padded carpet. What had been grating grew hypnotic, and I fought to retain control of my eyelids. They fluttered in time with the sound. As my sight blurred, my eyelashes elongated to huge sweeping shadows, flapping gently like giant wings, enslaved to the sound. The final time, I dreamed. I walked down a long, dark hall. I could not make out the walls or the ceiling, but I knew they were there. The sound was everywhere, only the slightest hesitation now between the rasping shh, shh. The world vibrated with, the floor beneath my feet pulsed it up and through my bones. My teeth hummed in resonance, and the measured pace of my steps followed zombie-like in the wake of each scrape. In the background, behind that odd sound, I heard my music. Juxtaposed, the music jarred on my senses and seemed out of place in the complacent, endless monotony. Ahead, the purple-black light glow suffused the passage, which opened up into a chamber. An image surfaced of the long package on the porch. I walked, and the elongated square passage became that box in the grass, impossibly large, the black light removed and waiting for me ahead. If only I could work my way free. I woke very suddenly, a pain in my neck from my head lolling back, the added weight of the headphones dragging towards the floor and making it difficult for my sleep-soaked brain to kick in enough muscles to lift it. My body did not want to respond. The sound was gone, 
and the music in my ears was deafening. I groped along the cord and managed to yank the set free of my head, only to be confronted by the massive drone of the white noise generators. By the time I got the static down to a level I could stand, and the music filtered back up through the cacophony, my cheeks were stained with tears, and I was physically ill, my legs trembling and sweat running in long rivulets down my neck and beneath my shirt. I needed a shower. I needed to eat and to make coffee. I glanced at the clock, 8.39. Then I glanced at the front door. I didn't want to know when he came back. I didn't want to see what he might carry inside. Above all, I did not want to go to sleep. That sound would return, I had no doubt. That the walls could withstand another assault, or that my sanity would remain intact when it did was another matter entirely. I crossed the room and glanced out on the porch. There were two packages waiting. I had missed the delivery, and they had dropped the packages outside my door. Despite my careful instructions, they had not woken me, and the packages were outside. One tall package leaned against the far side of the door. The other, I knew, would likely be one or another of the dozen sets of ear protection I'd ordered. The large package mocked me. I didn't remember ordering it, but I knew, without seeing inside, what it was. I needed it. I turned to stare at the phone. I could call them, have them come back, knock on the door, and finish the delivery. There was no time. It was nearing nine, and I didn't want to be caught in my living room when the music pulled sleep triggers in my head. I began to unlatch the deadbolts and chains. There were five above and five below the knob, spaced equidistant from one another, a sleek pattern of protection. The hinge side of the door was a series of six heavy-duty hinges with their roots embedded deeply in the frame of the house. I was fine through the first four locks and only trembled slightly as I unlatched the final two and reached for the doorknob, but there I stopped cold. I bit my lip to keep from crying out. A tremble began in my fingers, worked its way back through my wrists and up my arms until I shook uncontrollably. I closed my eyes, imagined that I was turning the knob on one of the white noise generators, a very large one. I pictured it in my mind, and then, before the image could fade, I turned my wrist. My palm was slick with sweat and slipped on the smooth surface of the knob. I gripped more tightly, and the lock clicked loudly. The sound echoed through my mind and jittered among the notes of the music. I felt the difference in the air. I smelled things. I shuddered violently and stepped back. That was enough. The door swung inward, and the package that had leaned against it fell inside as well. I leaned with tear-streaked eyes and clawed at it, dragging it in and then slamming into the door, hitting it with my shoulder so hard that my head slammed in after, a sickening thud that drove me to my knees as if offering a prayer of thanks to the closed door and all that it represented. I couldn't see it, but I knew the clock was dangerously close to nine, so I grabbed the package, which was heavy, staggered down the hall to my bedroom and closed the door behind me, still weeping. I had ten minutes, 
and I could already feel the circuits in my mind shutting down, one after another in preparation. My room shook as the shh, shh rose again. I knew it would not stop this time. Instead, it drew me into its embrace and dragged me towards the dream. I fought through the cardboard and the tape of the packing, ripped at it with my nails that had already taken a beating getting in the door. The wrapping fell away, and I tugged the contents free. Working quickly, I set things up as I'd planned, turned up the room's two large white noise generators, and placed the headphones tightly over my ears with their volume knobs cranked to the point of pain. Two minutes left, and I began. The walls shivered and shook as though huge talons scratched the walls. The floor hummed, and the lights dimmed as the music directed my world into sleep. I gripped the edge of my new lifeline, clutched it to my chest, and spun. At first, I moved slowly, but then, as the seconds ticked away and the movement became more difficult, I whirled. Eyes closed, eyes spun until I tilted, crashing painfully to the bed, missing and dropping to the floor. On the floor, I rolled, willing my brain to give me just enough time and momentum. I heaved, half circles now, arching my body to pull more and more of the soft cloth free of the spool, turning so that it rose over my chin, reached the bottom edge of the headphones, rose higher, and I dreamed. Voices rose from the shadows. I dangled in a glowing haze, unable to make out anything but indistinct silhouettes that moved and wavered beyond the brilliance. The black light was harsh on my eyes. Blood had rushed to my head, and my pulse crashed mattingly in my throat and my temple. I wanted to scream, but I could not get the air. I spun slowly. She was beautiful. She rested gently on a branch, leaves and colored flowers surrounding her, and the light caught the great eyes on her wings, the brilliant whirls of color. Those wings rose and fell rose and fell, and the motion caressed me. I felt it brush my hair and tease my skin. That gentle breeze spun me away, and then back again. Silk strands wrapped my throat where the cloth should have been. Too late, I thought, too late. Then those threads rose, doing what I had failed to do, sliding around and around my head. My mouth closed off, and only the musty air through my nostrils sustained me. Then that was denied me, thread by thread, and the sound became muffled as the strands wrapped my ears. Then there was no sound. There was no air. I struggled at first, but this sent me spinning faster and served only to wrap the silk tighter. I could no longer see them, but I knew that the eyes on her wings watched me with patience and love. As I passed into darkness... She was sealed from my sight. The voices, still distant and unclear, mumbled in the distance like muted thunder. Dr. Apizio frowned, fumbled with his key, and found the lock. He could hear the lunatic next door's music and an awful hissing sound like the release of gas. Behind him, a woman giggled. What is that? she asked, crowding through the door behind him. He frowned. I have no idea. 
When I moved in, he was very quiet. Now, it's enough to drive you insane. I've left complaints in his box, but he never checks it. I've never seen him outside his door, in fact. Then, remembering why they'd come, he grabbed her arm and drew her over to the shared wall of the townhouse. Along it stretched a glass case, like an aquarium, but there was no water. It was partitioned carefully, and behind each glass panel soft wings fluttered, waved, and undulated, caught in the brilliance of long, fluorescent black light tubes. Oh, she said softly. They stepped closer, and he led her towards the end, where a very large pagoda-shaped case rested on an end table. This was also lit by black light, though smaller, and the moth inside was exquisite. She sat on a branch surrounded by colored blossoms and leaves. From a stick near the center of the case, a cocoon dangled, spinning, lazily. Dr. Opizio leaned in close, frowning. She turned, saw his expression, and raised an eyebrow. What? That, he said, pointing at the cocoon. It shouldn't be there. Moths don't reproduce like that. It wasn't here yesterday. She turned back and stared. The moth's wings whispered softly. Shh! Shh! Through the walls, the white noise generators screamed their static. That was David Neal Wilson's Patterns in White Static as read by Seth Williams. Seth Williams is the avatar for a three-kilometer sentient starship that is parked, probably uncomfortably, close to the third planet. Surprisingly, he has not yet been discovered. He is very happy that the inhabitants have discovered enough technology so that he can communicate in this limited fashion. Any communication can be directed to www.thebujum.org. Link will be in the show notes. And that will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Our show was produced by our editors, Philip Oldham and Scott Silk, and theme music by David Raiklin. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Life's better with American Family Insurance. Because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.